Good morning, church. As Daniel said, my name is Timothy. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central Church. Uh, encouraged by all of you braving the winter storm. Glad you could be here. Uh, we're going to continue in our sermon series in the book of Ephesians. Uh, we're in chapter 5, so if you'd turn there uh, in your Bibles uh, as we come to that time to we, where we hear God speak to us. Uh, if you're able, I'd love for you to stand uh, as we read the Word of God. Ephesians 5, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 21. This is God's word. He says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as it is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is God's word. The prophet Isaiah says, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Father, we have a difficult text this morning, a text that by its very nature offends. And Father, I pray that even now as we prepare to enter into your word that you would soften our hearts, that we might receive from you, that we might know that this is your word that you have written down for us, that we might be transformed as we encounter you. Father, I pray, as Daniel said, that I would get out of your way and allow your word to speak. God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. While I was in seminary, part of our education experience included bringing in well-known local pastors to share with us 
about the day-to-day struggle of pastoral ministry. And I will never forget the day in seminary when they brought in Isaac Hunter. Uh, Now that name probably doesn't resonate with any of you, um, but as a young aspiring pastor, that name meant a lot to me. Uh, Isaac Hunter planted a church in downtown Orlando in about 2002. He was in his late 20s. And within a couple years, he had five campuses across the city and roughly 5,000 people in attendance on Sunday mornings. Isaac Hunter was Orlando's equivalent to J.D. Greer. Uh, He was a Christian celebrity. And so obviously, me and my seminary friends, we were drooling over the idea of this guy coming and sharing with us, much like you might be if Rachel Ray or Beyonce or Warren Buffett, Mickey Mouse, I don't know, whoever, you fill in the blank, but for us seminary nerds, this was a big deal. And so Isaac came and, and we peppered him with questions, stupid questions like, how'd you do it? What's the secret? And then some more legitimate questions like, what's been the hardest thing so far? How do you not let it go to your head? How do you keep good boundaries and protect your family life? On and on and on. And Isaac rifled off all these wonderfully polished answers while our pens moved at 90 miles an hour, trying to make sure that we captured all these gold nuggets of wisdom. About six months later, shortly after I moved here to Durham, one of my seminary friends emailed me a press release uh, that stated that Isaac Hunter had stepped down from ministry because he was having an affair with one of his staff members. He was regularly drinking to excess and using drugs and was physically abusive to his wife and that she'd been living in fear for years for her own safety and the safety of her children. A year later, Isaac Hunter committed suicide. Uh, Church, that is a tragic but 100% true story. I, I didn't make that up. And the scariest part of that story is that nobody knew that anything was going on. It was all kept in secret, hidden behind closed doors. Church, secret sins, those sins that happen when nobody is looking are deadly. They're deadly. And the scary truth is that the sins that we commit behind closed doors are in fact far more destructive than the ones that we do out in the open. And brothers and sisters, we can, we can look real good like Isaac Hunter. We can be wildly successful in our life and in our work. We can have all the right answers. And at the same time, we can have a closet full of secrets that are destroying us and those around us. Paul is declaring that the secrets have to stop. And so as we prepare to dive into our text this morning, I want to once again reorient you to the structure of Paul's letter. Paul Paul began this letter by reminding us of who we are in Christ, our new identity, both as individuals and as a community, the church. And then beginning in chapter four, Paul begins to lay out for us what it looks like to live out of this new identity. As Daniel said last week, what it looks like to walk it out. And the big picture point that Paul is continuing to hammer is that who we are, our identity, and what we believe, our theology, are inseparably wed with what we do, our ethics, our behavior. Who we are and what we believe are always inseparably wed with what we do. It's so important that we understand that as Christians. 
It's why we come to you and we bring truth week in and week out. Because who we are and what we believe affects how we live. So now here in chapter 5, once again, as Paul is declaring, because of who we are, chapters 1 through 3, so then shall you live, chapters 4 through 6. So chapter 5 is another one of these application chapters. If you recall from last week and the week before, Paul began in chapter 4 by proclaiming that we are now one people. We're one, so we must fight for unity. But here in chapter 5, Paul's message is different. He's saying, we are now a holy people. Not one people, but a holy people. And therefore, Paul's main point is, we must fight for purity, for holiness. And fight we must, church, because we all know, we all know this. Holiness is not a condition into which we drift. Amen? Purity doesn't just happen by accident. It's something that we have to fight for. It's hard work. And what Paul is recognizing here is that the greatest threat to the purity of the church, the church of Jesus Christ, is secret sin. And church, we will not be holy until we begin to deal with the things that are going on behind closed doors. Because holiness is not a matter of appearance, it's a matter of the heart, right? We can look good, but what's going on in our hearts and behind closed doors is what matters. So this morning we're gonna fight for the purity of the church by seeking to destroy the secret sins that have slithered their way into our lives. This is probably not the sermon that you were hoping for. You're thinking, I wish we could have talked about anything else, loving your neighbor, about tithing even, racism, anything but secret sins. But the problem is, church, we're committed to preaching the word of God, and this is what Paul's talking about right here. So we have to go there. We have to look at this text and allow it to speak to our hearts. And for those of you here who are not a Christian, who are wrestling with the claims of Christ, we say this often, but I want to encourage you again. We are so glad you're here. We really mean that. But I also want to prepare you. Paul is speaking to the church, and what he's saying here is hard. And so often we uh, do a disservice as Christians when we talk to people who are not Christians and we, we paint a picture of all the benefits that come from being a Christian. But here, what Paul is doing, he's talking about the high cost. And Jesus never shied away from the cost of following him. And so if you're here and you're wrestling with the claims of Christ, I want to be honest with you, this is going to be hard because there's a high cost that's being described here. But what I want you to listen for is that what we often find, actually what we always find, is that the high cost that we end up giving ends up being a benefit in disguise. That what we think is costly is actually a blessing in God's divine providence because he knows what's best for us. And so I want you to listen for that and and hear that uh, as this high cost is painted for us. Paul has three points for us this morning. He says a lot here, and we're not going to touch everything he says, but the three things that I do want to highlight for you this morning, these are the three phases of our time this morning. First, we need to figure out why we must destroy secret sins. Secondly, what are the secret sins we must destroy? And three, how do we destroy them? So begin, why must we destroy these secret sins in our life? Why? Why do we do this? Why must we fight for holiness? Why is this such a big, big deal? And Paul, again, he highlights his motive that he gives us, again, as our identity. Look at verse 1. 
Verse 1 is really the culmination of this argument that Paul has been making in chapters 1 through 3. His main point, if I were to summarize, is that once we were far off and now we have been brought near. Once we were in the darkness and now we have been brought into the light. Once we were homeless and now we have a home. Or as he says it in verse 1, once we were fatherless and now we are children of God. Verse 1, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Paul's point is that the good news of the gospel is not that we have simply been acquitted, pronounced not guilty. It's that by the blood of Christ, we have been adopted into God's family. If I were on trial for murder and I was facing a life sentence and the judge declared me not guilty, I would be grateful, immeasurably grateful, but I'm not going to go give the judge a hug. He would probably put me back in jail if I did that. And I'm most certainly not going to go move into his home and sleep in his bed. He would definitely put me in jail if I did that. Because the judge is declaring me not guilty, but he's not said anything about my relationship with him, right? But the beauty of the gospel is that it's a whole different ballgame for us. We haven't just been declared not guilty, but we've been declared a part of his family, one of his own. That's huge. That's the identity change that Paul is talking about here. I grew up in Alabama, which means I like college football, Honestly, I've really enjoyed college football as of late. It's been really fun for me to watch college football. But when I got married, I got married to a North Carolinian. And North Carolinians apparently like college basketball. Okay? Amen, yeah. Which at first I thought was kind of strange. But after I got married, something interesting started happening to me. I started getting all these gifts, these T-shirts, these hats, these car decals, And interestingly enough, they all had this distinct color of blue on them. And what was happening here is these these gifts sent a message. I was being sent a message. And the clear message was from Stacy's family, my wife's family. And the message was that we worship, I mean, we cheer for Carolina in this family. That's the message that I was being told. Now, over the years, my definition of family has begun to change. This is what happens when you get married. More and more so, Stacy's family is becoming my family as well because they've welcomed me in, they've embraced me, they've claimed me as their own. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing about marriage. And what's interesting in that is one of the results of that, of that engrafting into their family, is that I find myself caring more and more about this basketball team coached by a man named Roy. When they lose, I get sad. When they win, I rejoice. What, something's happening to me. It's strange. It's bizarre. I can't understand it. You see, when we become a part of a family and it's healthy, we begin to love the things that the family loves. Our affections are transformed. Our identity begins to shape our behavior and our, and our love. Paul is reminding us here that we are a part of God's family, beloved members of his family, And therefore, we are to love what he loves. We're called to embrace and cherish the things that he cherishes, to walk the way that he walks, be imitators of him. In chapter 4, Paul said, to imitate God, we must become one because he is one. In chapter 5, Paul says, to imitate God, we must become holy because he is holy. So that's the first reason why we must fight to, to destroy these secret sins because because that's what we do in this family, amen? That's who we are. And our affections and our hearts should change to where we long to fight for holiness and purity. 
What's interesting here is Paul is reminding us of something that we already know to be true. We already know this. I can distinctively remember when I first started walking with Christ in college, and there were various aspects of my life that were not holy. We'll just leave it at that. There were ways that I was not in line with what God was calling me to be as a Christian. And as a result of this, when I came to church, I felt terrible. As a new Christian, you would think that I would love being here with the people of God, but there was all these things in my life that I was walking in that made me feel horrible. Why? Because I knew this new identity that I have, and I wasn't walking in it. I wasn't living it out. And so church was this place where I just felt guilty and ashamed, and I wanted to crawl under a rock and hide. Church, we know that we have been given this new identity, and so when we harbor these secret sins, we feel miserable, don't we? It eats us alive. I want to read a little uh, section of a uh, sermon by Charles Spurgeon that describes this misery that we feel when we hide, when we know who we are and we hide these secret sins. He says, of all the sinners, the man who makes a profession of religion and yet lives in iniquity is the most miserable. A downright wicked man who takes a glass in hand and says, I'm a drunkard and I'm not ashamed of it, he shall be utterly miserable in the worlds to come, but brief though it be, he has his hour of pleasure. A man who curses and swears and says, that is my habit, I'm a profane man, and makes a profession of it, he has at least some peace in his soul. But the man who walks with God's minister, who is united with God's church, who comes out before God's people and unites with them and then lives in sin, what a miserable existence he must have. Why? He has a worse existence than the mouse that is in the parlor running out now and then to pick up the crumbs and then back into his hole. Such men must run out now and then to sin, and oh, how fearful they are to be discovered. One day, perhaps, their character turns up. With wonderful cunning, they manage to conceal and gloss it over. But the next day, something else comes, and they live in constant fear, telling lie after lie to make their last lie appear truthful, adding deception to deception in order they may not be discovered. Church, we... Uh, may I be so bold as to say we all know what he's talking about right there. We've all experienced that secrecy, that hiding, and how miserable it makes us feel. There's no doubt in my mind that there are many in this room that are walking in secret sins, and you're miserable. I know you are. You can't stand being here because you can't stand yourself. You can't stand to look in the mirror. And I hope and pray that today is the day that you resolve to put an end to those secret sins. We're gonna talk about, Paul's gonna share with us how we do that, but I just wanna lay that before us. This leads us to our second point this morning. What are the secret sins that we must destroy? Paul is not content just to say, I know there's some secret sins going on and we need to deal with them. He actually is gonna name them. So it's about to get more personal. Look with me now at verses three and four. But sexual immorality and all purity or covetousness must not be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Paul begins here with sexual sins. Why does he do that? Uh, Certainly Paul knew his context. He would have known that the most prominent building in Ephesus was the temple of Artemis, the goddess of fertility. 
And because of this, Ephesus was an incredibly sexually charged city. And yet, I think more than the context, Paul knows that sexual sin tends to be the most common and most destructive secret sin. In a previous letter of Paul's, he says this about sexual sin, 1 Corinthians 6. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. You see, church, sexual sin, have, they have a unique ability to destroy us. Most other sins tend to destroy those around us and ourselves, but uniquely sexual sins, the, the main victim is us, and by default, those around us. Something about the nature of sexual sins that destroys our emo- emotional and spiritual selves. So church, let's look more closely at the text and, and see what Paul has to say here about these sins, beginning in verse three, and really the English translation is hard here. What Paul is speaking about here in verse three, he's really covering the whole gamut of sexual sin. In the first part, sexual immorality and impurity, Paul will be referring to adultery, sex outside of marriage, fornication outside of marriage, prostitution, and so on. He's, he's kind of rattling off a list here, all different kinds. And then this last word that we see here is very poorly translated. It says covetousness, but what most biblical scholars think that, he's, that Paul's talking about when we covet someone sexually, when we long for someone else's body who is not our spouse. A more fitting word that we would use in our context is lust. So Paul's saying not only is it the acts of sexual sin that we need to avoid, but also even the sexually impure thoughts must be addressed. And then Paul keeps coming. He says, verse 4, that we need to avoid filthy or sexual conversations. That purity for us as Christians means we avoid these sort of topics altogether. That we choose not to join in with dirty joking or crude sexual banter. Where's Paul going here? I think the key is in verse 4, and he's very fitting. He says, these things are out of place. These things are out of place. Church, Paul's point is not here that sex is filthy or dirty or needs to be avoided it's not a truncated view of sex. It's actually a much more lofty view of sex. And I think we need to sit here for a second. Paul is saying that sex is something beautiful, created by God. It's sacred. It's holy. It's pure. And for us as Christians, we have to be careful not to make it less than what it is. And that's what we do when we allow it to be a crude joke that we joke about. Or it's something that happens that's flippant when I've had a few drinks or I'm out at the bar and someone comes home with me, or when I refuse to not do what God says and in 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 enter into that covenant of marriage, but just have sex flippantly whenever the opportunity arises. We are, we are minimizing, we are, we are making much less of something that is so great and beautiful and God-honoring. Paul is giving us a lofty view of sex, and we need to not play around with it, not joke around with it. Purity is calling us to embrace that view of sex. So church, we need to begin to examine the ways that we have adopted a lesser view of what God has created, a lesser view of sex. If we're gonna be pure, we're gonna have to embrace what God has called us to, to embrace the biblical mandate, to have a lofty view of sex and to allow it to exist in the ways that God created it to exist and to enjoy it and celebrate it 
in that way. Church, if the statistics are true, there are a number of people in this room who are struggling with secret sexual sin. I'm not trying to scare you by saying that. I'm just acknowledging the reality that Paul is acknowledging here. What's scary is that most of what we read is that pornography, sex outside of marriage, affairs, when it comes to the church, we're actually not doing much better than the rest of the world in these areas. And so I just want to speak pointedly to you for a moment. Uh, Men, if you do not have people in your life who are asking you hard questions about what you're looking at on the internet, it's time to start. Pornography is surrounding us. And if we're going to be holy as God is holy, we're going to have to take this seriously. And I also understand that that, that the struggle with pornography is becoming more and more a male and female issue. And if we're not taking that serious, we will be, we will be defeated. We will be destroyed. And men and women, we need to have people in our lives that are examining our relationships to make sure that they are pure and God-honoring. If you don't have people in your life that are asking you hard questions about the ways you are relating to people in a sexual sense, you need to find some people. Because this is serious. This is dangerous. And Paul is coming at the church and saying, it's time that we be holy as God is holy. It's who we are. Now, church, it's not just sexual sin that we hide. Amen? There's so many different ways that we hide. We hide whenever we feel it's unsafe to tell the truth, right? I know in my own journey, there have been seasons in ministry where my heart for the Lord has been incredibly waning, where I just can't find a desire for God, for his word, for people. And in those times, I've found the tendency to want to hide. I've been so fearful to be honest about that because I'm a pastor, Do I get fired for that? Do people leave the church or lose respect for me? And so in this season of ministry where I was struggling to find a heart for the Lord, I I did just that. I went into hiding. And thankfully, Daniel and I, not too long ago, went into some counseling. And when the counselor sat in front of me, he said, Timothy, you look like a ghost. Because I had gone so deep into hiding that he felt like I was dead. Because I was so afraid, to be honest. Thankfully, I got some good counsel and was taught how to come out of hiding. So I found some men in my life that I could tell them whatever was going on, no matter what the consequences were. So I surrounded myself with men that I could say, man, I just don't even want to be at church today. I don't even care what God's word says. And I could tell them that, and I could be honest about that, no matter what the consequences are. Church, you need people like that in your life. You need people like that in your life. You need people that you can be honest with. There's so many ways that you can be trapped. Let me just list a few and see if maybe some of these land. I know there are men and women in this church that are addicted to pornography and they're afraid to share that with their husband or wife because you're afraid they're gonna leave you. So you're afraid to be honest. There are men and women in this church that are wrestling with same-sex attraction and you feel like if you tell someone they're gonna judge you and condemn you and write you off. There are moms who cannot stand their children and they're afraid if they confess that then people will think they're a terrible mom and and never talk to them again. There are college students in this room who care so much about your grades that you're always looking for an edge in the classroom even if it's not an ethical one. You're afraid that if you share that you might get expelled. 
There are couples in this room that are sleeping together outside of wedlock and are terrified, don't know who to talk to about it. That are men and women that are consistently using alcohol to excess and drugs and you're scared to death of what someone might say if you were honest about that. Church, these secret sins are destroying us. They're killing us. They're eating us alive. And we've got to begin to fight. And so that brings us to our third and final point. How do we fight? How do we fight these secret sins that are in our life? How do we break the patterns that are so deeply ingrained in us? How do we get out of this hole that keeps keeps to get? It seems to be getting deeper and deeper. There's a funny skit, Bob Newhart skit, where he's pretending to be a counselor. Some of you may have seen it. And people come into his counseling office with their problems and they begin to share with him. And then he looks at them after they've shared and he says, you just need to stop it. Just stop it. And they start trying to explain something. Just, no, you just need to stop it. Stop doing it. And it's a ridiculous skit, obviously, because we know that's not how that works. I can't just yell at you and say, stop it, and all of us will be good to go. That's not how, our, that's not how we work as human beings. It's not so simple. But what can we do? Since I can't just declare that we stop it, I can't do that to myself, what do we do? Paul gives us two things this morning, two practical solutions. First, he says we need to expose the darkness, and second, we need to be filled with the Spirit. Notice here that the two solutions that he gives us, one is active and one is passive. In one, we do the fighting, and in the other, the fighting is done for us. So keep that in mind as we look at these two Uh, action steps that are going to take place. Verse 8, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Paul is returning to his big idea from verse one. The darkness is not who you are. It's who you were, but it's not who you are. It's not in line with your new identity. And so he says, verse 11, therefore we avoid the works of darkness by exposing them. What does that mean? What does it mean to expose the works of the darkness? Well, it's it's what I just shared with you after being in this season of hiding where I had no passion for God and where I become just totally lost in the shell of a man, God gave me a place and he gave me the courage to expose the reality of who I was, to begin to be honest with other men about what was going on in my life. And it's that blatant honesty that brought these things into the light. And so the secret sins became just sins. They lost their teeth. Church, that's what we need to do. We need to bring into the light these things that are going on. Every single person in this room needs some people in their life, same gender, that you can come together with and you can tell them absolutely everything. If you don't have that, you're in trouble because you're living in darkness and those secret sins will find you in the darkness. You have to have that. I don't care how old you are, how young you are, you need that. You need that in your life. We begin to expose these sins, and then in the light is where we'll find victory. But not only do we need to take responsibility for bringing our own sins into the light, church, we need to create a culture that welcomes exposing darkness. I'm talking to all of us now. We have to foster a culture of 
of exposing and, and bringing to light our brokenness. So often the church creates a culture of put-togetherness, doesn't it? This is so often the case, a culture where we arrive on Sunday mornings and you feel the pressure to have all your ducks in a row. We have to make sure that our dress looks right, that our kids are well-behaved, and there's always a smile on our face. Church, we can breed this kind of culture, and it's this kind of culture that breeds secret sins. When we have to come in here and put on a show, we have to foster a culture of messiness, of I ain't got it togetherness in here. Only in that space will we begin to find freedom and light, where we have a responsibility to one another to create this kind of culture. And the only reason that we can do this is because of what God has said in verse one, way back when. He said that because of the loving sacrifice of Christ, we are children. And because we are children, we can be messy. And we can know that our status before God is not going anywhere because Christ has secured it on the cross. And so in light of that adoption, in light of that truth, we can come in here and be messy. Church, I'm encouraging that. We've gotta be messy. We've gotta be messy. Only then will freedom happen as we begin to show up as the messes that we really are. Lastly, Paul encourages us to fight for holiness by being filled with the Spirit. He says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So we fight actively by exposing the darkness in our lives, and we fight passively by being filled with the Spirit. Church, you need to be certain. This is the very same spirit that Paul declared previously that we were sealed with in chapter one. Okay, so we have the Holy Spirit. And Paul is saying that we have this spirit, but although we have him, we need to be filled with him over and over and over again. This is our only hope for becoming holy like God is holy, by the Holy Spirit's indwelling and filling. How are we to be filled? It would be easy, right, if Paul said, go fill yourself with the Holy Spirit. That would have been easy. We can do that. We know how to do that. But he says, he says the opposite. He says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. One of the recent advances in, in, in football and some other sports is that many teams are putting oxygen tanks on the sidelines. So players can come and they can put on the mask during the game and have their lungs filled up with this much needed substance. It re-brings re life to them. And when you think about what's going on, it's up to the player to recognize their need and to go to the source and put the mask on, but it's actually the oxygen that's doing the work, right? It's not the player, but the oxygen is the, what's bringing life to them. Much in the same way, we have this responsibility, church, we have the responsibility to go where the Spirit is and allow the Spirit to fill us. And church, it's not really that complicated. What the Bible teaches is that the Spirit is here, the Spirit is here in the preaching of God's word and the gathering of God's people and in his table. God promises that the Spirit is here. And so we come, we come to get that oxygen that we need. We come to be filled, filled by him. And it's his strength that enables us to fight and to combat the secret sin in our life. So church, I, I encourage you, come and be filled. Come each week and find the strength that we need to enter into this fight. Church, when I, heard, I first heard the news of Isaac Hunter, my first thought was, how could he? How could he do this? What a loser. I, I just couldn't even believe that I listened to that guy, that he duped me. I wanted to find my notes and rip them up and throw them away. But over time, I began to realize that I'm not any different than he is. I'm just as susceptible to the secret 
destructive power of sin. And if I'm not vigilantly fighting against those sins, bringing them into the light, and allowing myself to be filled with the Holy Spirit, I am the next headline. Jerry Bridges, he's a famous author and lifelong college minister with the Navigators, he once said that he believed there was no sin that he would not commit were he given the right access and anonymity. Do you understand what he's saying there? Lifelong Christian says if he had the opportunity and he knew he could get away with it, there's no sin that he thinks he would not commit. Jerry Bridges profoundly understands the wickedness of his own heart. The question for you and I is do we? Do we know how wicked our hearts can be? And if we see that danger, are we aware of it and willing to fight it? Church, we have to be willing to fight because we are children of the God. We must be willing to live in the light and bring and expose these things to darkness and allow the Holy Spirit to to fight for us in this battle. Amen? Church, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I confess that this message is, is so hard. I'm uncomfortable preaching it. I'm uncomfortable because I'm such a broken man and I'm not one who stands here as having figured it out, and I desperately need to be in the light just as much as everyone else here. God, I pray that you would help us to expose these secret sins in our life. I know that there are many that are dying. They're dying on the inside because they've been walking in these sins for so long, and it seems like there's no hope. God, I pray you'd give them the courage to be honest, just maybe with one person about what's going on, and that you would fill them with your spirit so that they might, they might have the courage to fight. They might fight for holiness because you, God, are holy. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.